every Sunday night now you can expect that the study is going to be very uh, applicational because of the imperatives that are found in Ephesians 4 to 6 based on the doctrine that is taught in Ephesians 1 to 3. And the whole theme is, is how do we figure out how to walk worthy? What all Christ has done for us, how do we walk worthy? And it's broken down into the five sections, which we won't review every time, but it's, uh, we're in the section on unity, which runs from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 16. And we talked already about the threats to unity. It's really our own pride, our own anger. We could review these verses, and we'll read them again in just a minute. And then the basis for unity is the oneness of God, the oneness of the Trinity, and the oneness of the body. We truly are a church family, and there is a oneness here. There is a unity, should be, but the threats that rise up against our unity will rise up from within. Uh, So many times we're worried about the threats and enemies to the church that are without, but there's threats within the church also. And so tonight, we're just going to try to cover verses 7 to 10 because it's, a, it's, one of these, it's one of these passages that, and there's several of them in the Bible, and I, I always mention them when I do, because you open up the commentary to that verse after, you write, after I write some notes down on yellow paper, I open it up to that verse, and three of the books I have on Ephesians said something like this. This is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to comprehend. Scholars have debated for years, and no one has ever come up with a real answer for this. Well, I'm here to tell you that I have. Even though this was the, <laughs> the most difficult passage, I have solved it and figured it out, and uh, so we're going to unveil that truth to the world tonight. Uh, so it's a, it's a tough one, but I'm going to tell you what I think, and then you're free to study and read on your own. And I may not be right. I, I'm falling in, I think, a safe place. Uh, others do believe this. Others don't. So i just giving you up front warning about that as we get into it. But let's... Uh, get a running start and read a little bit, remind us of what we've learned by just by reading it, but our focus is in verses 7 to 10. This is verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Something we've got to work at, everyone. And the reason is, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. We all have entered into a relationship with Christ the same way, by one faith, we we one baptism. I don't believe that's talking about water baptism. I think that's talking about the the one way, the one spirit placed us into the one body of Christ with one Lord and one God. There's a great unity there. So how can we divide it amongst ourselves because so-and-so didn't talk to me this morning or because this person kind of annoys me with this little behaviorism? Right? That, that can't be. And I, I know you put up with annoyances that I have. I know that. And, I, and trust me, we all put up with annoyances that you have. We all, we all do that. And we do that with long-suffering. And, and w- it's not like we do that with gritted teeth and bit lip. We do that in love because we love each other. We should. Then he transitions. Okay, We go from the verse 6 where it says God is above all. That is, he's sovereign over his church. Through all, he's active in his church. In you all, he's present with the church. And then you see the transition, but. But always transitions to a different topic. And you see he goes from all to what? He goes from the group to the individual. He says each one. So you see all, all, all in verse 6, but to each one. So there's diversity in the individuality of the group of the body. To each one of us, verse 7, grace was given 
according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? That's what we'd like to know, Paul. (laughs) What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And that's the difficult passage we're going to try to talk about. There are individuals that form up the group of the body of Christ, and each one of those individuals receive what? What's the verse say? Easy answer. What did each one of the individuals receive? Grace. Every one of us receives grace. There's different kinds of grace in the Bible. I would say that what your friend is experiencing is what is known as a dying grace. It, it's, it's a, it's, there's there's uh, saving grace. There's sustaining grace. There's common grace. There's all different kinds of grace. And I think what this grace is talking about is that God gives to every one of the body an enabling grace. In other words, a power that is given to each believer to do the work that God has assigned to us within the body of Christ. Some people, I mean, I'm telling you what, when you talk about this being one of the hardest passages, it is is interesting that that I come up with what I think it means and then I open a book and say, oh, this guy, he seems to be making a lot of sense. Well, wait a minute, let's do that. No, this guy seems to be making a lot of sense. And I'll say that some people don't think this is talking about spiritual gifts. I kind of do. I kind of lean towards the fact that what it means is is that we have, this, we have this group, this body of Christ, and each one of those in that body, each one of the individuals, has received a grace gift. Okay, Because he's going to go on in the later passage to talk about some of those gifts in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And you know other passages like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 teach that every single believer, when they become a Christian, they receive a spiritual gift. And those are listed in those passages. Do you remember what some of those are? This isn't the point of our study, but do you remember what some of the spiritual gifts are? Go ahead and just shout a couple out. Okay, being a helper. Being a helper is a great spiritual gift. Welcoming, hospitality is a gift. Mercy. Yeah, the preaching and prophesying. There's all the, there's, I wish we could go through that list. It's not our point tonight. And some of those gifts have passed away, healing and tongues, and, and we believe that. Again, not the point. But each one receives a gift, and they are supposed to use that gift to promote and edify the body, and they receive grace and empowerment to exercise that gift within the body to promote that unity. They say, well, I, I don't think I'm able to do that. Yes, you are because God has given you the grace by which to do it. You have a distinctive role to play in this local body. And God has empowered you with the grace to do that. And the exercising of that gift promotes unity and edification. Look at verse number 12 to 14. We're going to come to this next week. But the pastors and so on equip the saints to work, to do their ministry, using their gift, verse 12, to edify, to build up the body of Christ, to build them up to what? That they no longer be, uh, this is verse 14, excuse me, verse 13, to build them up to unity of the faith. That there is a unity behind our beliefs and your gifts are given to you to be exercised. Now these gifts, back in verse 7, are given 
according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, who decides your gift and who decides the amount of the gift and who decides the amount of power that goes along with the gift? Who decides all that? It's given to the according to Christ. So there is no place for jealousy. There is no place for desiring some other gift that has been given to someone else and to think, well, why wasn't I given that gift or the power to do that gift? Christ has given you the power to exercise your gift the way he wants you to. And there's a diversity of those gifts, and we've listed a few of those, and he enables you to use them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of, differences of ministries, but the same Lord, and there are di- diversities of activities, but it's the same God. There is diversity in the unity, and that is, that is a description of the body of Christ. What happens if you're not using that gift in the church? What happens if you refuse to use the gift that God has given you? The body will suffer, and you, your, you first of all, the body will... Exactly right. The body will not grow to the way it's supposed to because you're not using your gift. But listen to this, 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has, a re- has received a gift, each one has, if you've received a gift and you have, minister it to one another. Basically saying use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Okay? The manifold, the diverse grace of God. He sprinkled these little gifts on his church, and you're using that gift in the church, builds up and edifies the church, brings it to unity, but also proves that you're a good steward of that gift. Ever received a crummy gift? Ever received a crummy gift? You all have received crummy gifts. You open up the present, and you have to have this fake smile because you hate the gift. You know you're never going to use the gift. And you say, you kind of like, oh, this is so nice. Where did you get this? And the reason you're asking is because you want to return it later. Oh, I, uh, I, bought it at, I bought it online at a place that uh, no longer exists. Oh, thank you so much. And it goes in the closet and you never use it. Some people do that with their spiritual gifts. And what First Peter 4.10 is, and right on, the body suffers, but you are being disobedient and you are not exercising that gift and being a good steward of it. God has graciously given it to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And the body of Christ is strengthened when you use it. Now, we're going to discuss that a little more next week. But he takes this little aside, and he starts, he, he quotes from an Old Testament passage. He starts writing with parentheses. At least that's how people translate it, that this is kind of a side thought. So what is he doing? He's, he's starting to explode into this section about unity, saying, well, one of the ways to preserve unity is by each person using their gifts. So you better use it, because God has graciously given it. But now I'm going to step back and say a couple sentences that don't really seem to fit here at all. And he quotes from what Old Testament book and chapter? If you have a little note next to it, you could be the first one to say it and win a special prize. What, what does he say? What is it from? Psalm 68. So let's look at it, okay? Let's look at where he quotes from. It's important for us to do that. Since he quotes from it, let's look and see what he did. Okay, Psalm 68. A lot has been written about Psalm 68. It's another passage that is difficult to interpret. What we're basically going to answer tonight is this. I think, let's think about Paul's mindset as he's writing, okay? He's written Ephesians 1 to 3. 
to express to us and to his readers, the Ephesians first, and now eventually to all believers, the great things God has done for us in giving us every spiritual blessing. And it's like, for by grace are you saved. There's great unity. Now, now he starts uh, giving these imperatives in chapter 4 to 6, and the first thing he talks about is, since Christ has brought Jew and Gentile together, let there be unity. Work for that unity. Exercise your gift to promote unity. And then he steps back and says, when he ascended on high, he wait a minute, what is this about? Why are you doing this? Here's the question he's answering. What gives Christ the right to give gifts? What gives Christ the right to have the authority to demand that we use these gifts? What gives Christ the right to be the head of the church? What gives Christ his authority? He's going to answer that question. Because maybe he's anticipating that the people are thinking that. Because I just was pretty upfront in saying, if you don't use your gift, you're basically being what? You're basically being disobedient. And almost even worse than that, it's a way for you to express the grace of God. And so you're, you're, you're almost hiding God's grace from being exposed to others. It's, it's pretty terrible. So that's a pretty strong statement that Paul is making too. And so people, well, who is this? Who's this guy to give gifts? What qualifies Christ to be the head of the body and demand we use these gifts and give them out to everybody? What gives him this authority? So Paul is going to quote from Psalm 68 to demonstrate why. Without getting too technical, let me just say this. Psalm 68 is a psalm of victory. It's, it was frequently quoted by, uh, I'm trying to remember, by, I'm not going to say who specific, because I can't remember who specific it said in the book, but it said, uh, I want to say it was French uh, armies quoted Psalm 68 uh, before and after battles. Um, it was, it's, a, it's a psalm of military victory. You can see it right in the first verse of Psalm 68. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Can you see French people quoting that going into battle? I don't have a French accent, but that, that's kind of the idea. They're kind of claiming this scripture as they go to battle. Let God arise and scatter his enemies. We want to win this battle. And it continues, and we won't read the whole passage. Uh, verse 7. O God, when you went out before your people and you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. This is a psalm, not only about military victory, but about God's mighty acts on behalf of his people. And almost everybody who comments on this passage thinks it refers to a specific uh, instance it's not just that, in general, God is great in battles, and he has victory. It's referring to a specific instance in 2 Samuel 6, when the Ark of the Covenant is being returned. This is the, at the same time when Uzzah dies, because he touches it. And David dances, and his wife says, why are you dancing? It's that whole story. But the picture is that God's presence is returning to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and the, the vision is that the Ark of the Covenant, which is symbolic of the presence of God, is ascending up that mountain in victory. And his enemies have been scattered. Numbers 10, verses 34 to 36 also speaks of this. doesn't speak of that exact instance, but it speaks about God scattering his enemies, providing for his people. Now, look then to verse 18. We're skipping a lot. 
I'm just trying to give you an overview of why Paul is using Verse 18 is the verse that Paul quotes. So Paul, as he's writing about unity and the need to use spiritual gifts, in his mind he goes back to an ancient psalm of military victory when the ark was brought back to Jerusalem, ascends up the mountain. Verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. Did you keep your finger in Ephesians 4? Because look at the changes he makes. And this is why it gets technically tricky. In verse 8 of Ephesians, he says, when he ascended on high, so he changes the pronoun from you to he. Well, that's maybe not as big of a deal as we, uh, as we need to discuss tonight. But there is a big change. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, 18 says, he, you led captivity captive and you received gifts from men. So Paul changes uh, you to he and he changes the idea of the ascending ark and God receiving gifts to Jesus giving gifts. Now, this is, this is the difficult passage and why much has been debated about. Paul seems to be referring to this time of victory when the ark ascended up this mountain. Now, after this event, such a huge event, the victory by a king, I mean, what things, what things would be true? The king would bring back spoils from the battle. The king would receive glory and honor from uh, his armies and his people, especially the people that he liberated from bondage. And he would parade around the enemy prisoners whom he had conquered so everybody could boo and hiss at those enemy prisoners and everyone else would be rejoicing in the victory of the king. Paul's changing of the words from he, uh, excuse me, from you to he and from uh, receiving to giving seems he's not, this is not a prophetic passage, okay? This is not an exact quote, so he's not saying, and try to stay with me through this very brainy thing, he's not saying that verse 18 is a prophetic passage about Jesus. He's just kind of alluding to this story that happened. If a king came back from battle, would he receive gifts? Sure. Would he share gifts too? Probably. Probably he would give gifts out as well, some of the spoils. So I think Paul is not, specifically caring that every word is exactly right. He's thinking about the bigger image and the bigger theme of Psalm 68. And the bigger theme of Psalm 68 is what? Starts with a V and sounds a lot like sictory. Yeah, it's victory. The theme is victory. And the idea that the ark ascended, so did Ephesians chapter 4. Christ ascended. Just like the ark ascended in victory, Christ ascended in victory. That's what he's alluding to. But there's other parts of that. It's not just that he had the victory, and we're going to, I hate to announce all of it right now, but I'm so excited about it. It's that the enemy has been conquered and paraded around. Colossians 2.15, he made a show of his enemies publicly and triumphed over them. Prisoners have been released. Spoils and gifts are given. And the king is in his rightful place. 
That's Psalm 68. But it's also a picture of Christ who, when he paid the sacrifice for our sins, ascended on high. Go back to Ephesians 4. Now, again, that's the technical tricky part that is debated, and it gets even worse than that, or I shouldn't say worse, but it gets harder than that. Go back to Ephesians 4. Why can Christ give these gifts? Why can he? Because he's the what? He's the victor. He's the king. He's, the, he's in charge. He has victory. Victory gives him the right to do this. He is the conquering king. Okay. So why does he have the right? Let me give you three quick reasons because we, we want to get to our communion supper. Three quick reasons. The bottom line is, though, the only reason is because he's victory. But how is it pictured? It's pictured, number one, in his ascending on high, verse 8. When did Jesus ascend on high? This is an easy Bible answer. Jeopardy question, only $100. When did he ascend on high? What chapter and book? Acts 1. Remember? He uh, was standing on the Mount of Olives. That very same place he's going to come back, and that mountain is going to split in two. Everybody's going to watch it on CNN. Right? And the men are standing there. The same 11 guys we were talking about for the last three months. He's gone. The angels come down and says, why stand you uh, gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who went up to heaven is going to come back. He ascended to his proper place at the right hand of God. And he ascended after victory. He has conquered. On the cross, he said, it is finished. And at the crucifixion and the resurrection, I already quoted Colossians 2, verse 15. He conquered his enemies. And people, according to Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, who are in bondage to the devil, are now captive to their king, Jesus. Prior to the work of Christ, we were bound in our sins, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. But Christ's victory assures us freedom. Reason number one, he ascended. Reason number two, he had descended from on high. Last night, maybe it was two nights ago, I was really in a trouble spot about this. I called up Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this. Martin Lloyd-Jones has like five sermons on these three verses. And I didn't listen to all of them. I listened to a portion of one yesterday on the way home. And he made this awesome point about this that I hadn't reflected upon. If he ascended, I, I love what he says here in verse uh, 9. We're kind of moving around in the passage. But now this, he ascended. We all know what that's talking about. He rose from the ground, literally ascended into heaven. What does it mean but that he first descended? Okay, If he ascended, then he descended. And here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Then there can be no question about who Jesus is. He said it much better than I just did. If he went back, that means he came from there. So don't question who this person is. There, there's, there's no doubt he is the son of God because he, remember in John 3 when he says to Nicodemus, there is only one person, I'm, I'm really paraphrasing this, there's only one who has ascended to heaven, the one who has descended from heaven, who is also in heaven. He's talking about himself there. His ascension proves his descension, which proves he came from there which means he is God, right? Which means he has the right then to be the head of the church and the giver of gifts to the church and demand that you use them and demand unity because he came down from heaven prior to his ascension. You can't go back if you didn't come down, is what Paul is saying. 
Does everyone track with that? He said it much better. Listen to his sermon on it. And, and, but it really struck me that we cannot doubt this, the claims of Christ. He descended to bring victory. And let's think about that idea of descended. He left the throne of heaven. We're, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper night. Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis passage. This didn't happen. It's not like God and Jesus had a conversation like, what are we going to do about the, the uh, condemnation of mankind? Jesus, are you willing to go? Well, let me get back to you in a few thousand years. It's not like they had that conversation because it was the sovereign plan of God from all eternity. But Jesus, even though they never had that conversation, demonstrated a willingness to do what was required. And that is, you've got to leave, and you've got to suffer, and you've got to condescend to man, becoming man yourself, and suffering, and dying, and pulling out those rebels out of that pool by your own blood. And he was willing to do that. The incarnation of John 1, again, which was mentioned in Sunday school class this morning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does it mean that he ascended, but that he first descended? And he descended to provide salvation for us. Isn't that overwhelming? It's like, we, we think about that. I prayed with the guys tonight about this being a routine thing, and it, it can't be. He descended to bring victory. Now, the third thing, and the tricky thing, he ascended. And what does it mean he ascended if he first descended? And then this tricky phrase, into the lower parts of the earth. Into the lower parts of the earth. Now, there's all kinds of different theories about this. I, I'm telling you what I believe. You may not believe this. I'm going to just tell you what I think. And this is not outside the, the, uh, the uh, orthodoxy of the church. It may not be the most popular opinion, but it's what I think. After Jesus died... Where'd he go? Where'd he go? So he died Friday afternoon at three o'clock. He didn't rise again until uh, he didn't rise again and, and demonstrate in his body at least until sun well we know until Sunday morning. So day and a half, where is he? Passage tells us that he descended in the lower parts of the earth. Lots of different options on this. Some people believe that because in the Old Testament it frequently used lower parts uh, to describe the womb. Uh, it says things like you knit me together in, in the in the in the lower parts or in the in my it could be that some people believe it's just again referring to the incarnation that he descended into the womb of a woman could be some think lower parts of the earth just means that he descended to the earth right he he was in heaven he descended to the earth then why use the phrase lower parts of the earth that doesn't seem to it's kind of adding something that is unnecessary when Jesus died. He, prior to his death, he looked at the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What do you mean by that? Throughout the Old Testament, when, when people died, it frequently uses this term. They were gathered to their fathers. They died and they were gathered to their fathers. Let's be real clear about something right now. If I died tonight as a believer in Christ, if you died tonight as a believer in Christ, you go immediately in the presence of God. There are some that believe, and I'm one of them, that Old Testament saints, when they died, went to Hades or Sheol. Let me just kind of explain. In Luke chapter 16, there's an instance where the rich man dies and Lazarus dies. Jesus, you all familiar with that story? And the, and the rich man uh, goes to Hades, and, the, and Lazarus goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. 
Dan's busy. And, and there's, apparently they're, they're talking to each other, and the passage says there's a great gulf fixed so that nobody can cross over. What I believe that's talking about, and I'm, I'm not alone, but this is not a, everybody doesn't view it this way, is that prior to the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ, all of the dead went to Sheol, but it was divided into two compartments like Luke 16 describes. One was a place of comfort and pleasure. One was a place of torment and agony. Okay. It wasn't the presence of God. Some people don't believe that. I struggle with that a little bit. Did Old Testament saints go immediately in the presence of God? I think they went to this place. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Could it be that he's talking about that blessed place, Abraham's bosom? You're going to be with me there. Maybe. I kind of believe that when he says lower parts of the earth, that's what he's talking about. And on that Friday night, this is the place he went. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, as it correlates with this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Listen, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. When Jesus died, he went on a little preaching campaign, and Martin Lloyd-Jones said that some people believe that he was preaching to people in the days of Noah who got a second chance to repent. Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't believe that, neither do we. But he's saying, I'm telling you, these are the varied opinions. Here's the bottom line of what I believe. When Christ died, he went to this place called Sheol. And I'm, I'm over here because this is, this is speculation. It is not something I, I mean, we can take these verses. I wouldn't dogmatically die on this issue. You understand what I'm saying? David, Abraham, Moses, they're in the pleasant part of Sheol. The, the wicked dead are in the unpleasant part called Hades. Jesus, of course, goes to the pleasant part and releases those captives. Now all those captives are in the presence of God. Meanwhile, he preached to the spirits in prison who were disobedient. Think to Luke 16. Maybe calling across that chasm. I'm not saying Jesus was like, nah, 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 nah. But what is he preaching to those spirits? Starts with a V and sounds like sictory. He's proclaiming his victory. His proclamation didn't secure victory because he already said it is finished, right? He already said it, the victory was over. But 1 Peter 3.19 says he proclaimed the gospel to those people in prison. And then uh, Ephesians 4.8, he led those captives captive. He led captivity captive. Those who were once imprisoned, and part of the reason people don't believe this, and this is kind of a, a nail in my theory, is that was, was Sheol captivity? Or were they bound? Well, if they're not in the presence of God, it, it could be. You see why this is a very difficult passage. But it, then I believe at that moment that those spirits, Christ released those, and in victory ascends. That's pretty awesome. He's not preaching the gospel to those spirits for a second opportunity. What he's proclaiming victory. Many early church fathers taught this proclaiming victory to the disobedient spirits and unlocking the godly captives of old, liberating them 
and taking them into the very presence of God so that when we die, we go into the very presence of God and we meet David, we meet Abraham. We don't, they're not locked into Sheol anymore. Hades still exists. The wicked dead who died today go to that same place and will remain there until they're released one final time for the full and final judgment that Christ will proclaim. Boy, do you think this qualifies Christ to demand how the church acts and give gifts and ask for unity? <laughs> Who are you to do that, right? He's the victorious king who liberated us as captives. We weren't in bondage in the sense like these Old Testament saints were. We are in worse bondage, in bondage to our sin. And Christ's blood releases us from that, and we celebrate that tonight. 277, let's sing one hymn.